0: Welcome to Touching Base, the new weekly podcast from GEN, in which the editors of Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News dissect the latest advances in the biotech arena. Uh, Welcome to the show. I'm Kevin Davis. And this week, a special edition of Touching Base, as we check in with two of our roving correspondents who are hanging out in San Francisco at the annual JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, one of the big, big events of the biotech conference landscape the land of the $35 bottle of water and four-figure hotel rooms, although I'm happy to say our guys are uh, a little more frugal than that. It's the 42nd edition of JPM, not quite as venerable as Jen, but almost. So Alex Filipidis and Jonathan Grinstein, thanks so much for taking a quick coffee break in your very hectic schedules this week. Uh, You're running from presentations to interviews, maybe taking in a few receptions and perhaps even a few parties as well. Uh, We're eager to hear your impressions about uh, J.P. Morgan in what is, I think, a pretty important year for the biotech industry. So, Alex, let me start with you. You've been to this rodeo a few times before. What stands out for you so far in the 2024 edition of JPM?
1: Howdy, Kevin. And uh, hi, Jonathan. I think what stands out uh, this year is that The crowd and the tone is not really ebullient or, you know, really exuberant, but a little bit more cautious. People are back uh, together. The hallways are almost as crowded as they were in the late 20-teens when we had these every year. But the mood is, I think people are waiting and seeing what 2024 brings. And a a key question to them is... uh, whether customers will be resuming spending, especially for tool companies that sell equipment and systems and consumables and things like that. About a half dozen presentations I was uh, at, I uh, heard CEOs talk about cautious customer spending. Now, a cynic might argue that might be an excuse for not making the numbers in, in 2023, but it is no no less true that it happened and a lot of companies are a little nervous and waiting to see whether a the broader economy turns around and b as a result uh, customers uh, resume lot, lots of purchases of, of equipment and, and services so that's uh, an overhang you might say to, to use uh, your know, business lingo over this conference
0: great great let's bring jonathan in jonathan what's been your sort of overall uh reaction to the to the atmosphere and the buzz around the event
2: yeah I'd agree with Alex and this is my second JPM the spirits are higher this year people seem to be eager to make deals and to find partnerships and funding whether that is happening I'm not totally clear on there hasn't been much news by way of m a and or really big news in general coming out of JPM. It's I don't know if people specifically scheduled news before and after, or if or if there's just really not a ton of news coming out this uh, week. Uh, one of the major bits of news that I did see was that the Danaher Corporation yesterday in their presentation announced a partnership with the IGI, or the Innovative Genomics Institute, uh, out of Berkeley, which is uh, Jennifer Doudna's kind of project to create or to use CRISPR both for human health and other other biotech opportunities. And um, they'll be looking to tackle a couple rare diseases, I believe, in immunology. So yeah, two rare immune disorders. So th- that was kind of the big news. But yeah, I I haven't been hit with a lot of, you know, this company buying this company sort of thing. But there has been some stuff coming up, but a little less vibrant in all the outpour of news but yeah people seem a little bit more happy to be here Um, I don't know if that's because the sun is out and not so much rain and I I don't know how to best say this to it it appears like there was an effort by the city to kind of clear the streets Mm -hmm. yeah I did have a, a couple confrontations yesterday with some of San Francisco's you know locals which did have me on my heels a little bit, I will say, but, you know, I, I think I finally saw what some of the people maybe complain about sometimes, but, um, you know, all in all, people seem in good spirits. Every coffee shop's filled with people having conversations and whatnot. So it's it's been a good time. There's been more visible
1: police presence uh, this year, I've noticed uh, from past years. I think that's a response to complaints uh, that some companies and ultimately JP Morgan, uh, conveyed to the city about quality of life uh, being a concern for attendees of this conference. Uh, Over the summer, uh, J.P. Morgan did announce the conference would be held this January in San Francisco, but made no commitment beyond this year. So one big question is, where is J.P. Morgan going to be next year? Now, a year ago, there were rumors about Florida, but we don't know where that's going to be held. That's one uh, thing. And And that's an important point. Jonathan raised another one is that the on the dearth of news that's a big difference from the first J.P. Morgan I went to in 2014 with John Sterling, and that year the first day the conference was electrified when Illumina's then CEO Jay Flatley announced the uh, breaking of the thousand dollar genome barrier cost barrier uh, for sequencing a genome, and uh, I remember that being uh, a topic of, of big talk coming out of an announcement uh, at the conference. You see companies sort of threading, but because they come out with press releases, sometimes uh, even a day or so earlier, it sort of blunts the impact when the CEOs mention something in a a presentation. But also the kinds of things that companies are announcing aren't uh, as, say, high-profile
0: Yes, somebody wrote a really good book called "The Thousand Dollar Genome." I'm just blanking on uh, on the name of the author, but uh, it's a nice it's a nice segue to Illumina, who you you uh, made a point of uh, sitting in on the presentation of the new CEO of Illumina, who I think has been uh, pretty quiet up until this point. So, what were your what were your thoughts uh, both on the style and the substance of uh, the new man in charge at Illumina? Well,
1: definitely, there's a big difference in the style of Jacob Faison compared to Francis de Souza. For one thing, Jacob Faison was in a full suit and tie, and that's a difference. You know, Francis would, de Souza would walk around with open shirts uh, sometimes, uh, or maybe a sweater or or something. Also, where where Francis de Souza sometimes delved into sort of big think type Topics like sort of integrating genomics with idealistic kinds of uh, goals. You know, Jacob was very focused on Illumina's performance, uh, both numbers and priorities for the company, which is the point from yesterday's presentation. On the one hand, Illumina is... Uh, going to focus a lot on boosting the top line. They have to because it only went up by low single digits year over year last year. They talked about more partnerships and they did announce Friday a partnership with Janssen, uh, the Johnson & Johnson's uh, unit, to develop a novel molecular residual disease or MRD assay. And this would be to detect circulating tumor DNA. No value disclosed on that uh, partnership. However, and this is important, the Faison did caution that there may be further cost cuts by Illumina, because after all, when they came out with the cost cuts uh, over the summer, which was actually Francis de Souza's last big uh, initiative, they were supposed to save $100 million in annual savings. They wound up uh, cutting $175 million in annual savings. So... They're happy about that, even though it meant a a cutting an undisclosed number of jobs and uh, trimming back on their real estate portfolio. And even more interesting is that going forward, Illumina, according to in is going to focus on emphasizing the cost of the total workflow sample to insight end to end as opposed to playing up the cost of how much it costs to sequence a genome after that $1000 genome barrier i mentioned the first few years of francis de souza's uh, tenure he talked a lot about the $100 genome which Illumina got as far as 200 a genome when they rolled out NovaSeq X uh, late in 2022. And other companies came around and said they did have a $100 genome of their own, uh, Ultimate
0: being one. And, and there was a second uh, company as well. Was he specifically asked about the uh, the increasing competition in the next-gen sequencing space? Oh, yes, he was. A- absolutely. That was
1: the question the jp morgan analyst who serves as a moderator was asking questions and one of them was about competition because of the whole flurry of both yeah. uh, bigger and smaller uh, competitors and yeah i mean I, I think basin said the right stuff i encourage competition i think it's great for the industry great for our customers uh and i love that i love winning but he also to, that it's easy to say that Illumina will ultimately benefit from the growing number of competitors. But the, the hard part is uh, that there are so many competitors now. It's not just PacBio. I mentioned Ultima. There's Element Biosciences. There's BGI and its MGI subsidiary, which includes complete genomics Uh, You have Singular Genomics, which I wrote about uh, almost uh, a year and a half ago now, and Oxford Nanopore, you can not leave them out. And uh, so that's a crowded field. And each one is uh, sort of targeting Illumina in part by projecting themselves as more responsive, a little less aloof uh, than Illumina had been as a dominant player and still dominant in uh, next-gen sequencing.
0: Great and in- very interesting, Jonathan. You're usually more drawn to the the, the cool startups and uh, biotechs getting early financing, and I guess uh, AI must be a, a particularly exciting uh, topic in that space.
2: Yeah. So one of those companies that I spoke to, which also was just in very JPM fashion, we were to meet in the lobby. It was too busy. We caught. We headed over to a a Greek cafe. And I met with uh CEO and founder Nicholas Tillmans. Their approach there is generating hundreds of billions of compounds, small molecule compounds and fragments computationally, running experiments computationally to whittle that down to the hundreds of millions uh number, depending on how it, you know, their modeling works with a uh, particular targets. And then essentially they do which I think. This is an essential component. This can't all be done in in silico as they move it all into the wet lab. And they do pull down experiments with hundreds of millions of molecules to get tons of data points, refine their suites of candidates and kind of move forward from there. They're in very early stages. Uh, Nicholas seems like a great resource. I'll definitely be back in touch with him. And um, yeah, they just signed a collaboration with Nimbus. Their uh, Nimbus, so they're 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 really starting to set things in motion there, but still very very early stage.
0: And Jonathan, uh, you've also been talking with the CEO of Empress Therapeutics, another interesting uh, entity in this in the AI space.
2: Yeah, so Empress Therapeutics is a, a flagship company that just was unveiled this year. Apparently, they've been working behind the scenes for a few years, which I learned that they're already kind of ready to go into the clinic with a couple of leads. But I'll come back to that. But yeah, it's a flagship pioneering company. Also, just side note, got to stop by their uh, cocktail hour yesterday, which was just best food I've had at a cocktail hour. new, New bar knows how to throw a party, let's just say. But yeah, met with Jason Park. He's an operating partner at Flagship and CEO of Empress. And their approach there is, you know, instead of like anagenics which was synthesizing or creating compounds in silico, they're looking at commensal bacteria and the microbiome in humans to identify compounds that by their hypothesis may have biological function in humans, you know, if they are already symbiotically living within humans and producing compounds, maybe there's something among them that is Protecting people against disease or their lack thereof increases the risk of a particular indication. So that's kind of their main thesis there, which uh, you know is kind of nifty. I, I I do think it's something that could be applied potentially to like maybe other classes of organisms or whatnot. Yeah, they're they're not using generative AI to create all these kinds of molecules. Instead, they're using their AI to. Identify actually how these compounds may relate to certain biological pathways in human to do their predictions to whittle down to certain compounds and leads and then do experiments. So, and, and that that actually brings up an interesting point. They don't do target specific compound uh, identification. They're looking at pathways. So their AI has kind of looks at we have a a, a disease group. Let's and they compare them and they can find you know, what kind of pathways are dysregulated and they try to plug in these compounds to see where they may hit the pathways. And so it has a much broader view of trying to identify compounds instead of being very, uh, you know, one target, one indication driven. So we'll see what, what turns out there. Very good. Alex,
0: let me throw it back to you. Who else has uh, caught your, your eye uh, this week? Uh, 10X perhaps? Yes, definitely 10X uh, genomics. I attended their
1: presentation and uh, later spoke with uh, Serge Saxonov, uh, CEO. TEDx uh, had an upbeat uh, presentation uh, because they had some good news to report. First, preliminary uh, results for the fourth quarter: the revenue went up 18% year over year to 184 million dollars. As is, I guess typical consumables is most accounted for most of that at 140 mil. The rest being instrument revenue than services for the full year. uh, Last year, uh, they recorded uh, revenue of almost $619 million uh, for the year. That's 20% uh, higher than 2022. Uh, And again, uh, most of that being consumable revenue, uh, 480 million uh, bucks uh, of that. So the numbers uh, were favorable in part because of the launch of the Xenium platform. Although, Chromium is still their bigger draw, uh, being the first and oldest one. Also, they announced that uh, JP Morgan, the Visium HD, or high definition, uh, as of Monday, it was available for order. And that is uh, designed to meet, uh, designed to offer a higher resolution Visium product. And uh, that would go from 55 micron spots to two by two micron squares, which is supposed to enable analysis at single cell uh, level and also promising spatial discovery and whole transcriptome gene expression analysis is enabled uh, through this uh, as well. Mm -hmm. So they're still rolling out different improvements into their platforms. And I would expect uh, that... And the uptake of that is where they're going to have to see how that progresses.
0: Very good, uh, Jonathan. Uh, in a few minutes, we'll be playing your interview with the CEO and Chief Science Officer of another interesting, very interesting uh, startup, very young company, Liberate Bio. What what attracted you to uh, to to them and to to arrange that uh, discussion?
2: Yes, so about a year ago, I was approached and pitched the unveiling of a company called Liberate Bio, which was, it's a Coastal Ventures-backed endeavor. Ness in Birmingham was on the call, who I love chatting with. And um, it also, so this company was co-founded by Mike Mitchell, who um, was in Bob Langer's lab as a postdoc developing the mRNA technology that ended up leading to the COVID vaccine um, when before COVID hit and stuff like that, and he ended up growing in his academic career. He's a professor at UPenn, and he launched this company with the intention of uh, using AI and ML approaches to create non-viral lipid nanoparticle-based delivery vehicles that target individual groups of cells. Um, so essentially making an atlas of particles that are cell type specific um, and then also cargo specific. So whether it's a nucleotide or a protein or, or whatnot, and um, they were super early stages when I spoke to them a year ago. And so I was excited to see where they were now. And it sounds like they've made quite a bit of progress and are, you know, are in stages of both developing their own uh, pipeline and looking for partnerships. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed their co- the conversation with them.
0: Very good. Well, that's coming up in part two of Touching Base in just a few minutes. Alex and Jonathan, just final thoughts before we we let you get back to uh, your, you know asking tough questions of uh, of uh, some companies. Uh, what, uh, Alex? What's what are you? What's the other big news that you're looking for uh, uh, before you depart and head back to the East Coast?
3: Hmm. Well,
1: uh, let's see. Actually. I've got a few interviews with companies. I'm also going to be attending the uh, panel tonight uh, at the Mint. Uh, Some pretty big names, Avi Regev, Scott Gottlieb on a panel. Uh, Also, um, Recursion and NVIDIA are going to demonstrate their new AI uh, project, which I know they have announced very recently. And uh, so, yeah, wait to see how that goes. I'm still trying to connect with the the companies involved. And uh, over time, I uh, expect to be able to do so. But I figured it couldn't hurt to show my face.
0: <laughs> Very good. Jonathan, what else are you looking forward to uh, before you depart and head back down south to San Diego?
2: Yeah. So actually, I, I wanted to make one comment before what I'm looking forward to, yeah. which is, uh, you know, in our previous co- podcast, I brought up the uh, one other thing that was being talked about at JPM, which was diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, I I felt that within the walls of the West in the first day that, you know, there was potentially a slight change, maybe in the right direction. And um, I don't have any numbers to back it, but I was in a meeting yesterday with a startup called EpiBiologics and the CEO and CSO, or at least two C-suite members, I may not have the CEO part correct both women, I brought it up and they said, yeah, it's, uh, you know, maybe a a percent better. And I was like, oh, I'm I'm like, okay. And and they're like, and that they were happy, they they were like, at least it's a movement in the right direction, you know, like, so it's not huge changes in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, more uh, women being represented as well. And, um, but there is some Improvement there, according to other sets of eyes besides mine. I am looking forward to. I I have another uh, cocktail reception tonight with a venture with Coastal Ventures. Um, I'm a big fan of some of their groups, and um, I have a few more AI companies to catch up with. You know, who would have thought? So, um, yeah.
0: Well, the nice uh, thing about this conversation is that there'll be much more of it next week. Both Alex and Jonathan will be uh, our guests on Gen Live, which is the monthly talk show hosted by Gen's deputy editor, Juliana Lemieux. Uh, So you'll be able to hear a full debrief uh, for all the happenings and buzz and reaction uh, from uh, this week's JP Morgan uh, Healthcare Conference. Registration for Gen Live is free. More details and information at the Gen website, genengnews.com. So we thank Alex and Jonathan for checking in with us. Uh, For now, we'll take a very quick break, but stay tuned for part two of Touching Base, uh, Jonathan's excellent interview this week with the CEO and CSO of Liberate Bio. Don't go anywhere.
4: This episode of Touching Base is brought to you by the State of Cell and Gene Therapy. On January 24th, Jen proudly hosts its latest virtual event, the State of Cell and Gene Therapy. Over four and a half hours, you'll hear from a superb lineup of experts and thought leaders discussing the latest trends, breakthroughs, and challenges in the world of cell and gene therapy. Our speakers include Karen Musanuru, University of Pennsylvania and co-founder of Verve Therapeutics, Peter Marks, Director of the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research at the FDA, Jim Wilson, Gene Therapy Pioneer at Penn, Adrian Wolfson co-founder and executive chairman of replay and a very special guest, Victoria Gray, the first patient treated in a landmark XSL clinical trial for sickle cell disease approved by the FDA in December, 2023. The state of cell and gene therapy is free to register. Thanks to generous sponsorship from all Charles river and Roslyn CT for more information and to register, check us out at www.geng.com. News.com com forward slash summits welcome back in part two of touching base jonathan
0: grinstein sat down with the ceo and cso of liberate bio a boston-based biotech company that aims to solve the delivery problem in genetic medicine liberate was launched in 2022 funded by kosler ventures as jonathan mentioned before the break Co-founders include Nesson Birmingham, uh, the founding CEO of Intelia, and Professor Mike Mitchell of the University of Pennsylvania. Jonathan sat down with Walter Schapps, Liberate's Chief Science Officer, and Sean Davis, the company's CEO, uh, in somewhere a crowded uh, bar or cafe, not exactly sure where, in San Francisco this week. Enjoy the interview.
2: Thank you for meeting with me. Could you both introduce yourselves and and we can jump right into the great
5: bio. Sure. So, Walter Straps, Chief Scientific Officer at Liberate. I spent about the last 20 years doing oligonucleotide therapeutics, oligonucleotide nucleotide delivery. Um, I was at Cerna Therapeutics prior to being acquired by Merck. I spent eight years at Merck doing siRNA therapeutics um, and then we went to Intellia Therapeutics where I led Discovery for about three and a half years and then before coming to Liberate I was Chief Scientific Officer at Gemini Therapeutics which was Ocular Therapeutics Company. Um, a brief stint as the CEO of Carver, where we spoke before, um, and now I've joined with Sean to be CSO at, at Liberate. Yeah.
3: My name's Sean Davis. I'm the CEO of Liberate Bio. I'm a drug delivery scientist through and through, last 20 years. Uh, basically started in the transdermal drug delivery world, wrote some of the first papers showing microneedles could be used to deliver drugs through the skin. Uh, did about 10 years in the startup space where I translated those microneedles into a point-of-care blood collection system for diagnostic purposes. And then uh, went over to the dark side with Pharma for the next decade. Uh, first with Amgen and then with AstraZeneca. Um, you know, Going through the whole history, but basically most recently at AstraZeneca, I was the head of drug delivery for our biopharmaceutical development. That means I had a team of scientists across the U.S. and the U.K., and we were working on all kinds of biologic modalities. But in particular, it's where I first started working on nucleic acid delivery. So the team delivered on, pen, on the DARPA Pandemic Prevention Program pre-COVID-19, and then uh, ultimately ended up being the CMC technical lead for several vaccine programs using mRNA and lipid nanoparticles also. And Ness and Mike and the rest of the team kind of pulled me out of AstraZeneca, convincing me that they would give me the the people and money necessary to deliver on what I thought was supposed to be done at all of big pharma, but they just can't focus on. They're focused on new targets, on new molecules, uh, and delivery is secondary. It's always going to be secondary to them. Uh, For us, delivery is everything, and I think if you look at genetic medicine space, it should be everything. Uh, Outside of the hepatocytes, uh, I don't know who's really going to accomplish that, so when we solve that problem, I, I think we've done a lot for our patients. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. There's lots of amazing
2: medicines out there, but without a way to get them to where they need to go, they're, they're rendered a little bit not so useful.
3: Well, in fairness to the pharma companies, this is the first class of molecules where it's a make or break. Like in all the other drug delivery space, like I love drug delivery. It's a fun space. But the, the truth is the molecule drives the mechanism of action. That's what has to, you know, ultimately be safe and effective. And the delivery device is important. It's got to get in the body somehow, but usually they figure it out. Uh, This is the first class where without an effective delivery vehicle to protect the cargo as it goes through the body from the immune system, to get it to the right cells and to allow it to actually get into the cell to take action, you don't have a product at all. Um, So honestly, if anything, I'm just amazed that there hasn't been a bigger focus for other companies. But I mean, you certainly see some of them are getting quite bullish about it, making quite a few investments in the space. So it's positive for us. And for patients.
2: So can you tell me a little bit about Liberate Bio's approach and whether you're looking at, from my understanding, it's it's mostly non-viral stuff, but it'd be great to hear about the approach
3: in general and all the different kinds of things you're trying out. Yeah. So, I mean, it's great that you kind of already heard the backstory about how a lot of this came together. We're we're exclusively non-viral vehicles. We think they're safer easier to produce and allow us to encapsulate more cargo, larger cargo. So that's a baseline starting point for us. Um, Also, you think about kind of LNPs with the gold standard, got 2 billion doses delivered already with RNA vaccines. So like a pretty good track record as as a starting place. Um, We have done most of our work in lipid nanoparticles so far, but one of our co-founders, Teresa Reinecke, who I don't think you've met, uh, is actually sort of Mike's counterpart on the polymer side of the world. Uh, Has designed and commercialized a couple of polymer transfection agents uh, also has done some work in the AI and ML space to kind of understand how to improve what we're learning from these particles but also design them more efficiently. And so with uh, Mike and Teresa and the rest of the team coming together, now we're really at a place where in the past 12 months we've basically demonstrated that we can reinvent the discovery process. We've now shown that in non-human primates we can deliver pools of a large number of particles, tens even hundreds of particles and understand empirically where these nanoparticles are arriving in the body uh, shortcutting all of the inevitable failure to translate from cells to rodents to non-human primates and so uh, we're sort of at this precipice where now that we've demonstrated we have this platform for rna barcoding that allows us to do that work first in rodents now in non-human primates Uh, In the meantime, our chemists have created a little over 150, or they've designed over 200 proprietary lipids. We've synthesized 150 of them. They're in the freezer. We're about to launch into a really aggressive screening campaign in non-human primates
5: figure out what works. And and the overarching thesis of this from the very beginning was that it has to be done in non-human primates. So a lot of the work that's been done on delivery, people did it in cells. That doesn't translate. They did it in mice. That doesn't translate. NHPs, they don't translate perfectly, but they translate much better than any Anything else that's been identified. The problem has been you have to make a lot of material to test it in non human primates, um, and you have to test things one at a time in non human primates. So we're using a barcoding approach that allows us to do hundred lipid nanoparticles in a single pool, you inject that into the animal, then you recover the organs, you go in, you sequence for the presence of those barcodes, you know where your LMPs went right off the bat. So there's still more work to be done after that, of course, but at least it says these went here and those went there and these went nowhere. I mean, you've narrowed it down to what the things that you're interested in. Yeah, so essentially running multiple experiments in parallel on the same animal. Exactly, yes. Yes. Just like parallel processing has been a big deal
3: in the computational world, parallel processing can be important here too. I, mean, I think it's also taking a more holistic view of the entire discovery process. Like there's testing more efficiently in the right, testing more efficiently, yep. stopped, but moving risk earlier in the cycle. So when you fail, you do it cheaply and you know, early in the process. But then figuring out how are you going to increase the throughput for all the rest of the steps, whether that's the synthesis of the lipids themselves for the testing. Okay, I can test 100 now. Can you make 100? like that's its own challenge, and then even generating enough ideas. Go design me 100 different proprietary lipids that are all interesting and have a chance of working. And so we're systematically going through those pieces and removing the roadblocks. This barcoding approach was the first one in biology. We, on the computational science side of things, we've kind of started uh, automating the analysis so that we understand what characteristics of the molecules are driving improved expression, using that to then screen what we should be making. And then finally, a, a generative AI system that actually can be prompted with a lipid design. So let's go out and take MC3, the on lipid, and say make me 100,000 analogs of this. Spits out 100,000 analogs. Are all of them good and do you want to go make them tomorrow? Probably not because it still costs a lot to make them, so you have to screen them down. But, you know, we're systematically going through and we're moving roadblocks and then just kind of accelerating the whole process so that we going to faster.
2: When you say lipids... Are you speaking specifically about individual molecules or are you talking about certain combinations? Because from my understanding, to create like a lipid nanoparticle that will carry a certain kind of cargo and not merge into another... Lipid and whatnot, you know, and then also get into a cell. There's several different kinds so of lipids. So we're specifically
5: talking about cationic lipids, right? Which is generally the component of like of a four-component lipid nanoparticle. That's sort of the business component of it is the cationic, and that's what we're actually that's what we're making. Um, there are additional things that we can do and have done where you can make five-component lipid nanoparticles as well. But right now we're focusing on the cationic lipid, yeah, which addresses most of the concerns that you've raised. That that's the component.
3: I mean, I think what's unique about the space and part of why we felt like we had to take a more empirical approach is that the design space just for that cationic ionizable lipid is really big, right? I mean, it's a big molecule to start with. You can branch it in all, you know, really infinite different ways. That's challenging. Then the ratio of that lipid relative to those other three is a whole new set of complexity. Then if you do a fifth component, now you have another aspect. Then you have the size of the particle, then you have the morphology, you have the route of administration. It's like the design space just expands so big that even if you really know how to screen efficiently, you'll never be able to cover it all. So we're trying to figure out how do you you know, cover that big design space in a smart way by taking discrete points, testing analogs in that area, learning from them, and and then feeding that into the system to kind of you know, frankly, derive new insights about what's important about this chemistry. So what is Liberate Bio
2: trying to position itself as? Um, you're definitely developing a platform and you're opening up you're liberating the targeting of lots of cells, you know? Is there a pipeline in the works behind it already going on and partnerships maybe on the horizon or already in play
3: that you can see? Yeah, to? absolutely. I mean, uh, reluctant to speak about any partnerships in the process, but what I'll say is that the farm industry as a whole has done an amazing job of identifying targets and creating cargos that can potentially address those things. The gap so far has been in the delivery vehicle to be able to carry those pieces. So we know there's a group of not only waiting patients, but waiting pharma companies that is hungry for access to these types of materials. And so we see partnership as our fastest path to clinical validation and to delivering patient value. So that's certainly the starting point of our business model. The follow-up point is that post-COVID-19, the ability to generate nucleic acid cargos has been... Maybe not completely commoditized, but it's moving in that direction. If We know what sequence you want to create for an mRNA. We have four or five different CDMOs we go to, and we'll go produce it for you. So, when the differentiating factor is the delivery vehicle, and that's RIP, we think it's a great opportunity for us to build our own pipeline. Uh, I think it will be a medium-term play as opposed to the near term play for those partnerships, but it's certainly the direction we're going.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: And with all the different
2: kinds of cell types, I don't even know how many there actually are in the cell. Depending on uh, in the body, we went
3: through a prioritization process. It's a lot.
2: Yeah. Right, right, right.
3: <laughs> well, yeah,
2: could you tell me a little bit about that? Because I, I'm curious is what you chose to target. I mean, it was it because of the indications it's tied to, because of it hasn't been able to be targeted in a different way, I would assume it definitely includes that. But yeah. what are some of the uh, pieces that come into the equation of why you choose to target a particular
3: cell type? Yeah. So I think the simplest way to well, I mean the first thing to recognize is that you do need to prioritize by cell type and not by indication. And the reason I say that is because when you're making a delivery vehicle, you're not making indication specific delivery vehicles, you're making a cell type specific delivery vehicle. And if you solve the problem of cardiomyocytes or delivery to cardiomyocytes, there isn't one indication you're treating. There are six or seven interesting targets that are well validated, that all underpin major indications. And so that's critical to that business model question of maybe partner some, maybe build pipeline for others. But then, frankly, we we just kind of think about it as a a simple what's scientifically tractable, hard, easy, you know, easy, medium, hard. And then what's the relevance for and the validation for the targets in those cell types against particular indications? And so, you know, we went through that prioritization process both by tissues and by cell types and uh, really came to three that, you know, I mean... Honestly, there's so much value to be unlocked, it's kind of hard to, like, parse it out, but we think cardiomyocytes are particularly interesting to us. Um, We think podocytes are really interesting, and we think hemopoietic stem cells are really interesting. Uh, All have multiple genetic targets. All have big indications and populations associated with them, with unmet need. Many of them have... Even targets that are well-validated, and we know the safety profile on, but have failed trials with viral delivery vehicles. Um, so we think that's a starting place for us, but we're also being somewhat uh, opportunistic, right? You know, we, we have a process that lets us understand where the particles are going and all the organs of the body when we deliver it IV. So you know, we discover something in the lungs; it's not like we're going to just like turn a blind eye and walk away from it. We know there are partners out there that might want to focus on lungs while we're not focusing on them, so we'll we'll pass those along. Yeah, why would you ever
2: want to do in vivo targeting of HSPCs? No. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Why, it Seems you know. like there may be potential. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. Um, So, I mean, you you kind of touched on it, but what brings you to JPM and how's it been so
3: far? I mean, so far, its I mean, this is the biggest collection of folks I've been around in quite some time. (laughs) I I, I understand it's smaller than what JPM was, you know, pre-COVID, but uh, it still seems like there are quite a few people. Uh, So I think it's like this intersection of, frankly, great science and great business. People are looking to create value for... Their patients looking to create value for their stake, uh, for their shareholders. Uh, and so this is the kind of place where we can learn what others are doing. We can share what we're doing and an exchange of ideas, but we can also frankly solicit investments and partnerships. And so uh, we've had kind of two tracks. One, you know, we talked about the whole partnership piece. uh, But frankly, these experiments, even though they're really efficient, are still very expensive to get started with. We are solely backed by Coastal Ventures, who's been a really great supporter of ours and carried us through. We want to bring more people into the fold and uh, push forward as quickly as possible. I mean, frankly, our, our biggest problem is how quickly can we move, and that is strictly a function of money. The more money you have,
5: the more experiments you run, the more data you generate, the faster we get somewhere. I mean, over the last 12 months, what we've done is build the platform, right? And now we are at that point where now we have to put stuff through the platform that we have built. That takes a lot of money.
2: Is there kind of like a frequency or a length of time that's kind of generalizable to if you you do meet someone here, and they're mm. like, these are the cell types, this is the kind of cargo we're interested mm. in. I mean, is there roughly how long does it take, it takes to get to an answer?
5: There, there are a couple of answers to the yeah, question, yeah. right? I mean, and the short one is, right? So it, this is going to be an iterative process, yeah. right? So if there's a particular cell type that someone is interested in, and we have lipids, we make the pool, we test them, we see what goes to that particular cell type of interest, it is very unlikely that the first set of things that we test is going to show us the hit that we want to go forward with. In many cases, where people have done this in the past, they didn't have much of an option, right? They, because the cycle time is so long, they sort of got to take what they can get. For us, we expect that we're probably going to new, do, need to do two or three turns of the crank to, you know, essentially do incremental improvement of those things. Those turns of the crank are measured in like months rather than years, um, essentially. So our anticipation is that we can run something like three, four, five turns of the crank over the course of about six months or so. Um, So I think what our standard timeline is, our plan is to have an asset identified meaning you know a delivery asset that can go to a cell type of interest by the end of the third quarter of this year mm-hmm. for the for the prioritized cell types that's what we're working towards yeah.
2: going back to the idea of cell type over indication it, it is interesting to me from the perspective of if there is an indication that requires targeting of multiple cell types mm-hmm. if you have you know those those tools individually i'd imagine that yeah. they could be put together absolutely um, which is i don't know of much by way of like combinatorial organ or mm-hmm. tissues right, right. or cell type targeting so that's that's like a whole different
3: world yeah, I mean, of things that walter will kill me but like uh, <laughs> oh, oh no where are we going now <laughs> i'm just going to say that like i really think like if you imagine a future where we had delivery vehicles for whatever cell type you wanted and we can encapsulate a variety of different abilities to knock in, knock out, express. I mean, you start to open the door for treating polygenic disease.
5: No, so I'm not going to kill you. I agree with this completely. Okay. Like, oh, yeah. If so we're on the same page. Okay. There's a lot of you have to do.
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. There's, a, mean, yeah, there's that, a lot of things. That's, that's a future yeah. that you can see. I mean, yeah. look, there are already somewhere between five and 6,000 monogenic diseases. 90% of those might be treatable with prime editors. Yeah. So, like, that's already... Like mind blowing, changing the course of, med- of medicine. Yeah, yeah. But maybe polygenic too? I mean, yeah. those are all low pre- prevalence, high mortality diseases, but high prevalence, high mortality diseases could be addressed. Okay. And this is, I mean, for me, like, I'm more enamored with cardiomyocytes than maybe the rest of the team because I worked in metabolism when I was at AZ for a long time and saw the impact of these diseases. Uh, but you know, I think if you can start to go after some of those cell types, and you know, kidney fits into this also, I mean, metabolic disorders are just extraordinary in terms of their complexity and in terms of their impact on society for chronic disease. And so, you know, this is, you know, to me where things will eventually move towards. And you're starting to see that with, you know, Novo and the other players in the GLP-1 space addressing some of the metabolic uh, dysregulation. And the the appetite for, you know, appetite, maybe the wrong word, Uh, but anyway, the desire for weight loss and these other aspects, but just seeing the knock-on effect, you know. You have additional adipose tissue in the liver, eventually it becomes scarred, eventually you have NASH. You you know shift to more white fat instead of brown fat, you generate more, I mean, just like it all works together. And until you can make multiple plays, and you're starting to see that even in the peptide and small molecule world, you know, GLP-1 is amazing. GLP-1 plus, you know, glucagon. GLP-1 plus glucagon plus, you know, it's a, it's, it's a complex space and I relish the opportunity to take on that complexity, but again, I think you need tools to manage you need that the tools complexity. To, to, yeah. to, to manage yeah. it, and
5: the advantage of something like a lipid nanoparticle is it's manufacturable, right? Oh, yeah. This is not like you don't have to go back to the beginning to do this. In <laughs> fact, many of the components we like. The approach that we're taking is that the components would be common, yeah. right? It's the cation, As we say, we're varying the cationic lipid. If three of the four components that are in each of those two separate things are the same, it makes it a much more tractable manufacturing problem as well. I'm, yeah. I'm just laughing because last night uh, somebody was asking, they are like,
3: it seems like every week there's like a new virus-like particle or this component plus that. And I was like, look, I'm an engineer. Simple works. If you can get it done with four components, I can manufacture it, you can make billions of doses clearly, you can actually make a product. Uh, Making it more complex has never been the answer for me.
2: Mind-blowing stuff. Very glad I was able to make time to speak with you both. And um, yeah, thanks for teaching me about Liberate Bio. Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you finding us. Thank you. (laughs) that's it for this
0: week's edition of touching base hope you enjoyed it i'm kevin davis we'll be back next week with the entire gen team we look forward to touching base with you then goodbye for now